This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST. Do we really know what happened? The brother did it. The brother, that's what I thought too. I mean, that seems like kind of obvious. We're both into like true crimes. Uh, deathy murdery thing. Yeah. Maybe that should be the title. Uh, <laughs> deathy murdery thing. Could be that. Could be something not that, because that sucks. That's gonna be our theme song. It'll be just a that. silent recording of Latin out of tune every time. That's good. This is mystery murdery thingy thingy. Let us begin. Wasn't that good? Sure. No, you have to be real and Whatever say sure. Say. <laughs> I, I think we still haven't started yet. <laughs> no, when I, I, no, I said let us begin and then we started. Are you the priest? Do you say let us begin and then? Yeah. That, like that's supposed to mean something? Let <laughs> us begin. Let us begin. Let us you begin. Tomato, you're next. Potato. That was These are bad. Kindergarten jokes. Anywho, yeah. welcome to our podcast. We tell bad jokes. Often. Um. No, I think you really tell bad jokes. Embrace the disgrace. If I've learned anything from the Dan Lebertard show, <sighs> it's that you can make terrible. Terrible jokes. This is and not the Dan People Lebertard will show. find it entertaining. This is the Chloe and Mario show, the Clara show. I know, but it's it's one of my influences. What if we had our own show called what the are, What would you say are our main influences as podcasters? 
let's just pretend like we actually know what the fuck we're doing for a second. (laughs) Definitely last podcast on the left. That's what got me into podcasts. And my favorite murder. Obviously my favorite murder. My favorite murder got me into podcasts. Love my favorite murder. That's probably my favorite podcast. Atlanta Monster is so fucking good. Still working my way through it. It's... But I love the Dan Levitard show too, just because they like are talk willing to be like cringe worthy. They but they also don't talk about sports a lot of the time. It's like an ESPN show, but like a lot of the time they're talking about like what does this sports person look like? Like Tom Brady looks like your, you know, weird pool boy who you think your wife's cheating on you with or something. You that's know? kinda funny. And that's like a game that they play. <laughs> Uh, what does John Wayne Gacy look like? <laughs> okay. John Wayne Gacy looks like the guy that you see at the gym who always, you know, just, like, wears his underwear around in the locker room. <laughs> 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 and, like, doesn't care with, like, his balls hanging out. That's so gross. John Wayne Gacy is, like, the weird friend that uh, your aunt brought with her to the party (laughs) right right to try to like set him up with somebody yeah yeah apparently he was pretty charming that's so gross didn't mfm have a um a hometown murder like thing from someone whose like mom went on like a date with him so my friend a friend of mine Posted on the MFM page. She got a lot of likes. It's a pretty popular post uh-huh. about how she went, like, he came over to their house for dinner, to her oh, house for right. dinner. And, like, her mom was, like, friends with him and stuff. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. Well, people would go to his house for parties while there were bodies in under the floorboards. Ah! Like, people, like, hanging out, like, having drinks while there's, like... Some 17-year-old nubile, you know, boy who's been murdered, whose body is, like, under their feet. That is so messed up. It's pretty insane. And Chicago. It happened in Chicago. So, you know, we're close to them. Oh, by the way, this is Mystery Murdery Thingy. Mystery Murdery Thingy. I'm Mario. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I'm Chloe. (laughs) That's Mario. That's Chloe. Good job. You followed my cue. <laughs> That's what improv's all about. Really didn't know if you would. I took an improv class one time. Great. One time. All of us have. One time. <laughs> At one time or another. So, who's going to go first? I think we decided that yours was a little... You said yours was really sad. Yeah, well, I was just, like, watching this the documentary about it. Um, it's called 43... I was watching it off of Amazon, and uh, it was just pretty sad because, like, as we'll get into, there's, like, a lot of grieving parents. Mm. And that's, like, a thing with this one is, like, so I guess I'll, I'll just get, I'll just go. Yeah, so, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm doing the... Wait, wait, wait. Let me get cozy. What does that matter? <laughs> um, I need to get cozy to listen to the story. Is that, really? Is that necessary? Yeah. <laughs> okay. okay, go. I'm ready. Are you ready? I'm ready. (laughs) Okay. So I'm doing the 2014, um, uh, the disappearance of 43 students in Mexico, specifically from the town uh, or from a school uh, known as Ayotzinapa. So the 2014 Ayotzinapa students' disappearance. 
So it was September 26th, 2014, and a group of about 100 students were taking an annual trip Mm -hmm. that they they kind of did every year with um, this kind of group of uh, all these different rural schools throughout Mexico. And they would all go to Mexico City to uh, commemorate what's um, called the uh, Tlatelolco Massacre, which happened in 1968 in Mexico City. And and basically, you know, 19 the late 60s were like tumultuous time in Mexico, too, especially in terms of like labor unrest and those types of things. So the students from this school specifically are like really, you know, into like kind of socialist ideology and that sort of thing. So they were going um, to participate in the commemoration. And as part of that, they were going to the town of Iguala, which is a little bit, you know, away from where they were. To, like, get some buses, try to get some money, try to get some food to make this trip, which mm-hmm. is about, like, a four-hour trip, three, four-hour trip from Iguala to Mexico City. And this is all in Guerrero State in southwestern Mexico. So they do this through their school? Sort of. Um, it's definitely, like, a, a thing with the school, but it's kind of informal, Okay. And even, like, in previous times, they pretty much just, like, stole a bunch of buses, basically. Or, if you want to say, commandeered a number of buses. Oh, wow. And and to, to make this kind of trip. But they say this is also partly because... You know, the schools are just basically have almost no funding from the government. Yeah. And specifically this school, because of, you know, their, their like, ideology is very much, like, antagonistic toward the government, toward the federal government, and especially toward the state government. Because as we'll talk about throughout this, the corruption of the Mexican government at every level is rampant and is pretty, like, a, a, a central issue to what these students cared about, why they were going on this trip, why this happened. So I guess it's just, like, important to note that at the beginning, that corruption is, like, a big, big part of this and, like, official misconduct and... um you know, even, you know, being a part of, you know, what we're going to talk about. So basically, once the students get to this town, Iguala, they may have also been there to kind of disrupt this event that was happening to promote the wife of the current mayor of Iguala. Okay. Who both is related to some members of one of the big cartels in the area, but was also oh. running to be the next mayor. Of Iguala. So, already corruption. So, you you can kind of see where this is going. Yeah, the, the picture kind of, you know, is, is getting filled in here with, it, you know, at that level, at the local level to start out with. And basically what seems to have happened is that the students were wanting to take this certain route toward Mexico City. And they were stopped on the roads by the mayor, by, um, I've got his name somewhere, but I can't seem to find it right now. Um, but we'll get to that later because they end up getting like arrested and stuff. So anyway, 
the students get stopped on their way, so they kind of get funneled toward Iguala, uh, which is like the third largest city in that state. It's like okay. 100,000 people. So it's like a pretty sizable city. And so they're in the city. They're trying to, like, get these buses, like, trying to get food and stuff to, like, make this trip. And the local police uh, stop them and, you know, put up, like, physical barriers and stuff and kind of funnel them to, like, this one particular part of town, right, to Why? kind of, like, get them into an area. Well, it's not totally clear, but what happens next is that the police claim that the students were trying to hijack, like, three buses, just kind of, like, take them. The students claim, and the student union specifically claimed, that the students were detained while they were, like, protesting and trying to hitchhike. So it seems like what happened was, like, the students were trying to do this kind of plan that they usually do where they have kind of, like, you know, deals with people in Iguala to provide buses and they get support and then they move on to Mexico City. And they were, like, the ones that year that were supposed to kind of coordinate all these things. The police knew that they were going to do this and like the mayor of Iguala knew that they were going to do this and his wife and that they may have also been there to kind of make trouble for her, right, and protest what was going on there locally on their way. And so the police were basically set out to stop them, to get in their way, to like fuck with them. And it basically kind of escalated from there. So the police end up firing on the buses that the students were had taken at that point, um, killing two students at the scene itself. Oh, my God. Um, there was also another set of buses that was just in the area that the police thought were involved <gasps> but were not involved at all. And actually, one of them um, was, I think, transporting, like, a, like a youth soccer uh, team and oh th- there was like a 15 year old kid who was just killed just as a bystander just because they thought that those buses were also part of it so a lot of confusion um not totally clear what the police were trying to do and it's not it seems not clear why they were firing in the first place like what sparked that why yeah. did they start firing it's just really at this point it's like impossible to know exactly what happened that night But shots were fired by the police. The students, like I said, some of them were driving away in these buses. Uh, Other ones were running away just into the hills, you know, out out of the city, trying to get away. Um, About three hours later, and and this happened at about 9.30 p.m. initially. So this is like past midnight at this point. So it's like getting, you know, pretty late and everything. Some of the students fled back to the scene and spoke to some reporters. Yeah. And, and, you know, there were a lot of people around as well. According to some reports, there were as many as six killed and 25 wounded just in, you know, at the scene there, including some bystanders, you know, like I mentioned, that were mistaken for some of the students. How many people were killed? Um, some reports said as many as six were killed at the scene. Damn. And and that includes two of the Ayotzinapa uh, students themselves. Gesundheit. Thank you. So it's really not totally clear at this point what really happened. Like, that's kind of the central mystery, right, around this one is, like, what 
happened to these students? Are they dead? Are they alive? Were they taken by the federal government? Were they They're taken still by- gone? Wait, what? So there have been, you know, and we'll get into this in like more detail, right? But there have only ever been two of the remains that have ever been positively identified. So we know that those two definitely are dead. But the rest of them, we do not know where they are. And and I'll get into like the official line, the official investigation, what they say happened. But the parents that like I I heard them talking on the the uh, documentary and everything do not accept that they at least as of that one documentary I watched which was about nine months after it happened mind you this is now almost four years later they thought they were still alive and that the federal government was holding them or whatever and that they were just lying but. According to the official investigation that was done by the federal police, the students were arrested by the local police. Then they were handed over to a local gang, which are called the uh, Guerreros Unidos. Um, United War? United Warriors, yeah. Warriors. Yeah, the United Warriors, which is basically a split kind of a splinter group from that cartel that the Iguala mayor's wife, wife is related is to, related to some yeah. of the members of. So it's kind of complicated, but that that's kind of what the federal police say happened and that um, they were killed and then their bodies were burned and then the ashes and remains were dumped into a river. Why were they given over to a gang? Because um, what what the federal government says or is that— at least according to the government. Why? Right, right, right. What the federal government says is that Iguala's mayor—and I've got, <laughs> got their names here now—and um, his name is Jose Luis Abarca Velasquez and his wife, Maria de los Angeles Pineda Villa, were basically the masterminds behind this and that they were doing this presumably because these students were there trying to fuck with— the wife's political rally and and therefore they sicked the police on them and then handed them over to gangs it's it's all doesn't totally make sense and that's the federal government story yeah um and you know they say diff- different reports at the time say that the military may have been in the area but not intervened but Others believe that the military may have been directly involved. So I'm confused. So the police start firing into at these kids. Right. Some of them run away. Some of them are rounded up. Two of, or yeah, I think two, two of, of them, them are were shot, shot dead. Right at the scene. And then there and were then, some other bystanders who were also shot. And then they just disappeared. They were disappeared. That's the that it's actually a verb at that point. They were disappeared by the government, and according to the federal government, the local government disappeared them by giving them over to a local gang who killed them. How is disappeared a verb? I didn't even know that was a thing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. There are people who are disappeared in, you know, uh, certain South American countries. Certainly in Egypt, uh, a lot in Turkey right now. 
in China, in, Ru- in Russia. Uh, yeah, that, that's kind of part of it. You know, it's it basically the term means someone who is uh, kidnapped and removed, you know, or killed uh, and or held, you know, by the government without any information being disseminated publicly. And it's something that our government has done as well, of course. We, we you know, ex- extraordinary rendition, taking the taking of people to black sites, um, including one, by the way, that was apparently headed by the woman who's now nominated to run the CIA. Now oh, that, my, now that Mike nice. Pompeo is going to be the new uh, Secretary of State uh, if he gets confirmed. Uh, yeah, so she ran a black site in Thailand. Now she's going to be the CIA director. What's so, a black site? Um, a black site is um, a military prison that is not known publicly. That's fucked up. And the United States had a number of these in different countries uh, during the Bush administration, uh, whereas the Obama administration said, uh, we're not going to do that anymore, thankfully. Uh, And also, we're not going to torture people anymore, which is also something that the Mexican government definitely does uh, in terms of, like, the torture and rendition. So these kids could have been tortured, too? Like there was one like possibility. Yeah, um, unfortunately, there was one whose remains seemed to indicate torture. Oh my god! One of the two that's been positively identified. Um, oh my god! Yeah, uh, the other one's remains were. I don't think they were um, intact enough to really tell or anything. Whoa. So, anyway, uh, let me just kind of find my place here again. Okay, so the mayor and his wife, uh, Velasquez and Villa, were arrested in Mexico City about a month later. So they fled uh, once it kind of, you know, came out that they were going to be arrested and seemed like they were kind of getting scapegoated for it, maybe. Um, The Iguala police chief, Felipe Flores Velasquez, was also arrested uh, in Guerrero State around two years later. So years? around two years later, yeah. And and he uh, presumably was on the run since then. Um, there were also, you know, of course, eyewitness accounts at the scene. And the eyewitnesses basically said a number of things, that the students were forcibly detained by the police. So that part of it was kind of, you know, borne out by the eyewitnesses. And that they were then taken to the Iguala police station. Then they were given to the police in Cocula, which is a, a, na- a you know smaller town that's near nearby, who then transported them to a rural area and handed them over to the Guerreros Unidos. That sounds sketchy. Yeah, although that part of it, again, is kind of in dispute. Um, they were then transported... And, and this is kind of according to some confessions that may have been forced by torture. Mm-hmm. Um, but according to that confession, which they, they showed a, a video of it in the documentary, um, the students who, you know, the 43 that they had rounded up at that point were transported in trucks, one owned by uh, Gildardo Lopez Astudio, who's also known as El Gil, a leader in Guerreros Unidos. They may have thought that some of the students were a member of a rival gang 
mm. called Los Rojos, or maybe they had been told that by the police or something, just in terms of why they would want to kill them, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Right. Uh, therefore posing a threat to the Guerreros. They also may have, uh, the students also may have unintentionally commandeered a bus with heroin in it. Whoa. So that's another kind of theory in all of this, that the Guerreros Unidos were out for them because they took one of those buses they commandeered was actually transporting a huge amount of heroin Holy that shit. was bound for Chicago, apparently. Whoa. So, Whoa. yeah. <laughs> um, students, uh, the students were then ordered killed by the Guerreros leader, Cidronio Casarubias Salgado. So that's, you know, kind of the basic story that the government gave to the parents and everybody, the federal government. There were also, you know, obviously some other investigations that were done. There was a report from the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights that was released in September 2015. It lasted about six months. It was made up of a number of experts that were based out of South America And what they concluded was that the official version was, in their words, scientifically impossible. And this is actually also borne out by an article that I read in Science magazine that specifically the part about the fire. So the claim here is that the Guerreros Unidos burned 43 human bodies in one night. With a fire that lasted, you know, about like 12 to 18 hours or so. And basically what these people found was that that kind of fire did not occur at the site. Just that it it would have left marks and evidence at the dump where they said that this happened in in Okula. And they haven't find anything that wasn't just not there. When they actually went to that site where they said that it happened, that kind of fire had not occurred there. But there was a fire? Well, it's a dump. I mean, people burn trash all the time. Um, But that type of fire just could not have occurred at that site the way that they said it happened. And it would have involved, I don't remember what they said, but it was like hundreds of thousands of tons of wood. Like an impossible amount of wood that that would have been impossible for them to have that would have been necessary. And and they also said that it may not actually have been possible to completely burn the bodies in an an open fire. To just have them. Right. That it would have had to have been an enclosed incinerator environment just to scientifically be able to get up to the temperatures necessary to burn a human body all the way through. Yeah. And that was also kind of borne out by that Science Magazine article as well, which um, was this Australian professor who used um, pig bodies in his experiments. And That's like the spontaneous human combustion thing. It does kind of, yeah. Yeah. Um, but he saw in those experiments that the way that they said that it happened is just not plausible. Even under ideal conditions, it's not plausible. And what he found also is that the more bodies there are, the harder it would have been to do. Yeah, that's what it seems like. At right. Least. So it's just a huge hole. In addition to all of that, 
The father of one of the victims and a fellow student also claimed that it rained that entire night. That they said that this fire was burning. Mm. So, so, not too credible. Oh, and that, that experiment, uh, the professor was uh, Jose Torero at the University of Queensland. Okay, so it was also found that the federal police and the military were aware of the incident as it occurred, which they said was not the case. And, and that was also uh, backed up by this article that I was reading in uh, The Intercept, um, where people have done a lot of sleuthing and, like, figuring out exactly, like, this officer was here at this particular time and then was here at this particular time, da-da-da-da-da. And they've made this um, online, um, basically, like, a um, interactive, you know, thing that you can look at, like, what actually happened, like, the most objective, you know, kind of way they could figure it out. And it looks like the military were monitoring and reporting back as to what was happening that night. So Do the, we have those records of what they were saying and stuff? Not necessarily of what they were saying, but of their movements, according oh, to okay. public records and people who were there. Yeah. You know, they've compiled all of this. And um, they tracked one particular military intelligence officer who was, like, there. And then they know was, like, reporting back. So it seems clear that when the federal government claims that, you know, it was only the local government or the state government that was involved, that's not the case. You know, that at least the military was involved, maybe also the federal police. Whoa. Um, so. Why? Well. Is that something else well, you can't really. Well, no, I think we can kind of get into that, but let, let's kind of get into that at the end. Okay. We'll kind of talk a little bit more maybe about why and the wider implications and things like that. But. I know I'm kind of telling the story of it kind of piecemeal, but honestly, that's how it's come out. You know, throughout the years, there have just been different reports that have come out and different, you know, experts who have weighed in. And um, the parents have been tirelessly and especially if some of them tirelessly trying to find out what happened to their kids. And this is the part, like, what I was telling you earlier, like, when I was watching the documentary, I was, like, tearing up or almost several times because, and again, this was nine months after it happened, but, like, they think their kids are still alive. And it's eating them up inside. And, like, some of them have quit their jobs and made this, like, their full-time thing trying to find out what happened to their kids, where they are, are they still alive. They've taken trips to the United States, to Europe, and throughout Mexico. And, and you know, they've just been protesting. They've tr- been trying to get the United States to stop arming the Mexican uh, government's uh-huh. police forces, um, which is something that we've been doing for a long time um, since the Bush administration. So there's a lot to it, you know, Um, and that, but that's what, you know, obviously I always keep, I keep coming back to, you know, it's just like those parents and they're, they're not knowing and like wanting to find out. They don't have any remains of anybody, do they? No. There were only the two confirmed. Exactly. And that's what one of the parents was saying. Like if, if they're dead, 
give me their his body. Like it's not a animal; it's a person, human being. Yeah. You know, if if you ha- if you know that they're dead and you have their remains, like let it like, at least let us have their bodies to bury them properly. But they haven't. They haven't shown them anything. They haven't presented them with evidence. They met with the then attorney general. Uh, I think his last name's Kamal. They weren't convinced. You know, he showed them this video that he even said might be bogus. That <laughs> he claimed had proved what happened. But again, he himself, the attorney general, said it might be fake. As he showed it to them. Oh my god. So again, this parent's like, well, why the fuck are you showing it to us? Yeah. I mean, she didn't say fuck, but you know what I mean. I, oh my, I can't even imagine how frustrating that can be. Yeah. And then the president, who's still the president right now, goes on TV, Peña Nieto, and uh, says, you know, we'll, we're going to get to the bottom of this and blah, 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 blah. And it's all just bullshit. You know, because they're not trying to get to the bottom of it, clearly. Because, you know, even in my half-assed internet research, you know, I've found a bunch of stuff that doesn't make sense of what they were saying. Yeah. Um... You know, uh, but anyway, there was a text message that they do point to, the government does point to, from El Gil to Salgados, from the leader of Guerreros Unidos to the guy who was supposedly carrying this out, saying, we turned them into dust and threw their remains in the water. They will never find them. So that is one piece of evidence. And I, 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 you know, just in the, you know, obviously I'm have a bias here. <laughs> Clearly, I'm like taking a side, but um, that is one piece of pretty compelling evidence. Were they talking about the students? We don't know, because that's another thing. The parents, you know, like I said, have been doing all this, you know, legwork, including literal legwork, going out into the rural areas of fucking Guerrero State in Mexico, which is one of the most dangerous parts of Mexico. Oh, yeah. Looking for mass graves. Oh, I mean, God. the fucking courage of these people, the fucking dedication. balls and dedication. Yeah. I mean, it's a parent's dedication, so clearly, but I mean, the, not every parent would do that. Yeah. But some of the, I mean, these people are just like fucking... He, superheroes like they're going out there and they found a number i think it was like seven mass graves <gasps> oh my god just just in this area just in that area that is fucked up just in that hilly area you know around iwala so what about those graves do they know none of them were could were connected to the students oh my they found god. other graves too but um they specifically found seven mass graves I think it was seven uh, in that area. So, you know. How many people is considered a mass grave? Uh, I don't Do know. know. That's a good question. I would I imagine there's not. Technically a, what is it? You're talking about a mass shooting? Mass, technically a mass shooting. Because people have different. Like three or four or Well, people, right? there's, there, there isn't an accepted definition. Some people say an incident in which three or more people were shot. Excuse me. Some people say. An incident in which three or more people were killed by shooting, you know, it makes a big difference, actually. It sounds like a shade, but it's actually, like, makes a huge difference in the numbers. Wow. But anyway, um, their disappearance, you know, and all of this, 
you know, emotional distress that we're talking about, right? Not only felt by the parents, felt across Mexico. And it's, it's led, this incident led to a lot of social unrest in Guerrero, but also in Mexico City, um, which has had historically a lot of protests in it. Again, the Mexican government, very corrupt, you know, um, a lot of ties between, uh, you know, organized crime and, and the government and the police and everything else in Mexico. Uh, so they have a lot to be, you know, mad about. But this incident really, really sparked um, a big, you know, kind of protest movement in and of itself one might say there were government facilities that were attacked. Uh, the, the city hall of Iguala was burned, um, part, partly, but they don't use it anymore. Um, the governor of Guerrero state was forced to resign. Uh, this even led to protests as far away as Venezuela at, the University of Texas at El Paso, wow. uh, London, Paris, Vienna, and Buenos Aires. So really, it sparked like a global. And I remember hearing about this at the time too. Yeah, you know, so I mean, it's when was this? Huge. Again? Twenty fourteen. Yeah, September of twenty fourteen. So um, this was also probably the biggest single scandal in President. Enrique Peña Nieto's uh, term, uh, the one six-year term that he gets, which ends in, I think it's uh, July of this year. Mm. So we'll see. Uh, the current front runner, I think his last name's uh, Labrador. Uh, he's like a left-wing kind of guy. So I think he would be kind of a different, but who knows? People thought Peña Nieto was going to be great when he came in to replace Fox. And people thought Fox was going to be great when he mm. came in to replace I forget his name now, whoever it was during the Bush administration. So I don't know. But, you know, these, like I said, there have been, you know, some some violence, some burnings and things like that. But they've been mostly peaceful demonstrations um, and included, you know, the family of the students, uh, especially the ones in the United States. You know, some of them were when they did their tour through the United States. And this is also probably the most famous incident of the so-called Mexican drug war, which has been going yeah. on for many, many years, but, yeah. you know, kind of since about 2006, which, you know, as um, some of the people in the documentary, the 43 documentary were pointing out, it is mainly fueled by American consumption. And I think that's a real important thing to keep in mind in any story about Mexican violence of this kind that the cartels are their profits are driven by American consumption and the police and they are to a large extent armed by American armaments by guns that originated in the United States. So yeah, you said that earlier, right? So when certain Politicians in our countries start blaming Mexico with, you know, kind of over-the-top rhetoric for problems that we have in our country. I think it's important for us to realize that we are not, you know, we, we can't afford to throw too many stones in our glass house. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, um, 
On November 7th, 2014, Mex- the Mexican Attorney General Jesus Murillo Caram uh, also revealed that several plastic bags had been found in a river near Cucula. So this is where they say that the students ended up. But it, it really wasn't, like, that conclusive. What does and, that have to do with anything? Well, because they, they say that this is where the bodies of the students were taken after they were burned. Oh, and that that's but they've never produced these bodies really and like i said only two of the students were ever positively identified from those remains so yeah it's just not really like clear that that's where the majority of these people ended up um that attorney general was also forced to resign in terms of who else was kind of held to account for this about 80 people, including about 44 officers, were arrested. And that sounds good, but a lot of them, the vast majority of them, were later released and didn't really, like, force, didn't really, like, face any sort of discipline at all. So, also sketchy. Yeah, it's very sketchy. Um, the deputy police chief of Iguala was arrested also in May of 2015, Francisco Salgado Valladares. The relatives uh, of the slain students also tried to force themselves into an army base in Iguala in January of 2015, like, looking for the students. So that that's just kind of, like, a piece of evidence of, like, how, you know, distraught these people are, like, the lengths to which they'll go. They're, like, trying to literally, like, storm an army base, you know. I mean, these are, like, you know, 50-, 60-year-old men and women, you know, just physically trying to find their missing children and uh you know like i said they they feel like they can't move on they can't get closure because they don't well, I mean, really yeah. know you know yeah that, that was kind of it for you know kind of what happened in the investigation and you know i think clearly there's more to the story what the federal government said happened the story of they were given over to the these cartel members their bodies were burned dumped in a river, it's not credible. You know, that did not happen the way that they said that it happened. So why are they telling us that story? And what story are they trying to cover up that really did happen? Especially since they don't even have any evidence. Just that there's no evidence of that many bodies being burned, that it was, like, physically, scientifically impossible or whatever? That's the one big, big hole in it, that the bodies all being burned in a huge stack over one night in the open air that is not possible and that's what you know the attorney general called the historical truth which people have lambasted since then Mm. um sort of been an alternative facts kind of phrase for him uh so you know but we don't know you know and, and again you know it's like one of these where the government doesn't want you to know so we don't know (laughs) so we can't know they don't want you to know they don't want you to know but somebody knows something but these students you know just to kind of get back to that were targeted i believe because their school is known as one that uh supports and has produced people who are revolutionaries and you know critical of the government and protest leaders 
that's the whole ethos of the school is to bring in the poor children of the farmers who live in that area who are trying to eke out an existence um, and make them into teachers. It's it's a, a normal school, actually. It's it's a teaching school, uh, like a college. Um, and these students represented a sort of existential threat to the federal government because they, you know, ostensibly were going to be the leaders of the next protest movements. So for all the grief that it's gotten the federal government through all these protests and everything, and people in Mexico are allowed to protest and they're allowed to go on TV and criticize the government, but will anything actually change? You know, will there be any real reform or will there just be some scapegoats and everything's going to move on? But people aren't willing to move on from 43 young men going missing for no reason. So we'll see. People are still trying to get to the bottom of it. Quite new. Yeah. But like I said, it's pretty sad because in the end you have, you know, 43 young men, two of whom we know are dead, but that's really loud. <laughs> now I'm recording. <laughs> that one was a bummer. Yeah, I knew it was going to be a bummer. Yeah. This one's also a bummer. Okay. <laughs> We've got two bummers. So. Maybe we'll we'll try to do something, like, more lighthearted next time. <laughs> quote, unquote. Right. Um, so, I'm going to do the disappearance of Susan Powell, and I actually got this from a little Reddit post. Right. So. You love your Reddit. I love Reddit. I do. Yeah. Um, excuse me. Okay, so I'm. We're both. Burping a lot. I know. This time. <laughs> I've been drinking. I've been like drinking a lot of water, but I'm drinking it very quickly, so I'm like right. burping. Um, so I'm gonna be 100 percent honest when I say that I let's just be honest. Yep, that's what I'm doing. <laughs> let's just be. That was beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much. Mario has left the building. Oh God. Okay. Um, I, when I first was looking at this case, like I had no idea where to start. So basically Susan Powell went missing. Um, the last time she was seen was December 6th of 2009. So there's a lot to this and I'm going to talk about her and her family first and then we'll get into the disappearance and then we'll talk about all the crazy shit that followed because there's some serious crazy shit, serious crazy shit. Crazy shit. We can put that on a, a t-shirt. There's some serious crazy shit going on here. Right? Would you wear that now? Okay, moving on. <laughs> You're like, oh, I'm sorry. I, okay. So, Susan Powell, born Susan, Susan Cox. She married a man named Josh Powell. Um, both of them are Mormon. They come from the Church of the Latter-day Saints. Um... LDS, baby. We are the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. <laughs> Book of Mormon. Neither right? of us is Mormon, by the way, just to be clear. All I know about Mormonism is from the Book of Mormon song, All-American Prophet. I also know things about um, Mormonism from the South Park episode about Mormonism. That's where you get a lot of your knowledge, Mario. That's my main source of knowledge, South I Park. would say. I rely on Matt and Trey... They are my gurus. They are my 
muses. Anywho. This is creepy. This is getting creepy. No, I enjoy it. Should I keep going? No. They are my boyfriends. I just think we should talk about Susan Pye. They're, oh, what? Okay. They're your boyfriends? What? <laughs> okay. Right. See, uh, I was I was trying to step over the line. Why didn't you I tell finally me about this? There. Why didn't you tell me about this little thing happening? I just, you know. You didn't think I'd be down for a foursome? Right. I'm just kidding. With Matt and Trey. They're like sort of attractive guys. Funk enough. <laughs> we're editing. We're taking all of this out, by the yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. Okay. Um, do, do, do. So, originally from Portland, Oregon, they moved together to West Valley City, Utah, to get away from Josh's predatory father, who had a sexual obsession with Susan. And we'll touch on that later. Um, I feel like you said touch intentionally. We'll touch on that later. Ow, ow! Okay. (laughs) I didn't. (laughs) No pun intended. And they had two sons named Charlie and Brayden. So their marriage was, everything was really great at first. Susan was a cosmetologist and Josh had a business degree. And he, so he was working at various businesses over the years. Um, There were two kind of like main things that rocked their marriage. And one of them was the fact that um, Josh had to file for bankruptcy in 2007. He declared over $200,000 in debts and uh, this kind of like financial distress caused marital problems. And according to Susan's friends and family, um, Josh was abusive towards t- Josh was abusive towards her and had very controlling behavior. He was a very controlling person over her and the kids. Um, so, on advice of an attorney, Susan Powell documented the uh, the possessions in her home, fearing her husband Josh might sell off expensive items he had purchased, including tools and electronics. So there was like an actual video, and I watched it. Well, I kind of skipped through it because it's literally just her talking about like her possessions and stuff. But there's like some clear tension in there because um, uh, she's talking about how a lot of this stuff was bought on her credit. Hmm. Um, and Josh was buying stuff like, uh, a lot of computer stuff. Uh, uh, he had a lot of tools. He had a lot of like RC cars and like collections and stuff like that. A lot of power tools. Um, that's like part of their assets. This video was among the items police seized from her office after her disappearance in December of 2009. So about a year later, um, she wrote a, or they found a uh, a secret will with statements such as, I want it documented that there is extreme turmoil in our marriage. And, quote, if I die, it may not be an accident, even if it looks like one. Yeah, so she had a secret, she had a secret will that they found in a safety deposit box. So here's the basic timeline of this crazy two years that this family um, went through. Uh, so December 7th, 2009, Josh and Susan Powell failed to drop off their two sons at a daycare in Utah, and Susan failed to show up for work that day, sparking family members to start a search for her. So um, Josh's mother, Terrica Powell, and sister Jennifer Graves contacted the police, and the police broke into the house on suspicion that they may have been victims of carbon monoxide poisoning. Um the only, th- this is also like one of the weird things about this like first day of their disappearance uh, was that when the police broke in, they found um, 
two, they found like a wet spot on the carpet and two fans were like just blowing on the wet spot. That was like one of the things they found. They found Susan's purse, cell phone and car, her wallet, her keys, everything. They were all found at home. Um, and so what happened was after re returning later that day around 5 p.m., Josh told the police that he left with his sons, ages four and two at this time, in the middle of the night around 12.30 a.m. He said that he took the boys camping at Simpson Springs Recreation Area, leaving his wife at home. At 12.30 at, at night. At 12.30 at night. Hmm. Sketchy. Hey, kids, let's go on some night camping. Exactly. There Let's was also go on a snipe hunt. There was also, um, it was snowing that night and there were freezing temperatures. So, not plausible. Hmm. So two days later, December 9th, the house is searched. Among findings during the investigation were traces of Susan's blood on the floor, life insurance po policies on Susan for $1.5 million, and a handwritten letter from Susan describing, um, describing their like turbulent marriage and she in this letter she's expressing fear for her life so documents were released in 2013 regarding dna testing of the blood samples which were taken from josh and susan's home in 2009 during that search um one of the blood samples matched susan and another sample did not match either josh or charles chuck cox who is susan's father who were tested at the same time indicating the blood came from a, quote, unknown male contributor. The 10th, police find no evidence of Josh's campsite after they searched the area where, they where he told them that they supposedly were. Uh, December 15th, Josh fails to show up for his interview with police a day after getting a defense attorney. December 17th, this is also um, uh, some weird shit that happens. Uh, Josh liquidates her retirement accounts. And then even earlier than this, December 17th, um, he canceled his wife's regularly scheduled chiropractic sessions um, and withdrew his kids from daycare. So, and apparently he had spoken to coworkers about how to hide a body in an abandoned mine shaft in an isolated desert of Western Utah. Because that's just the kind of thing you talk about at work. Exactly, you know? exactly. Hey, how about them Knicks? How about them... Holes out in the middle of the desert in which to put your dead wife. You know, you know, totally normal. Uh, he, uh, and hey, Larry. Time. How would you commit the perfect crime? Oh just asking around. Just, <laughs> just getting everybody's opinions. Just, the question of the day. Uh, wanted to know. I got some cake for my birthday. Also, how do you commit the perfect murder? Hey, Josh. Why is there a shovel at your desk? Oh, shovel? What? <laughs> Kicks up behind the... Oh, no. There's nothing here. <laughs> what? Oh, my God. But, yeah, don't be an idiot. <laughs> right. So, during the course of the investigation, the kids start talking. Mm. Police interviewed their eldest son, Charlie. Who's four, right? Uh... Yeah, he's the only one. Um, Charlie, the child confirmed that the camping trip Josh described took place. And that they did go camping. However, unlike his father, he stated that Susan had gone with them. Um, and she did not return. Weeks after her disappearance, a teacher reported that Charlie said his mother was dead. The parents of Susan Powell said that while at daycare several months after Susan's disappearance, 
Brayden, the other child, drew a picture of a van with three people in it and told carers that mommy was in the trunk. Yeah. Oh my God. Oh my God is right. I'm telling you, when that kids start talking, chilling. it's creepy. Yeah. Right with the Aunt Diane case. Yeah, yeah. Where he was like, mommy, mommy was, couldn't see. Right. Ooh, that's so scary. And then I flew out of the car like Superman. I remember he said, ooh, he was just five. Oh, that's, mm. that one was so sad. Right. So let's talk about Stephen Powell, Susan's creepy father-in-law. Oh, right, right, right. So like I said earlier, one of the reasons that Josh and Susan moved away was because of their fucking creepy-ass father. Although Josh was the only official suspect in the case, his father was also under scrutiny for his romantic obsession with Susan. There were computer images seized from his house in 2010 turned up 4,500 images of Susan taken without her knowledge, including close-ups of specific body parts. Gross. In 1992, him and his wife, Terry Powell, got a divorce. And one of the things that she claimed during the divorce filings was that he was addicted to pornography and had fantasies of living with multiple wives. She also claimed that he exposed the children to graphic sexual imagery as well. September 7th, uh, 2011, Steve was arrested for child pornography and 14 counts of voyeurism after being caught photographing his neighbor's children through a bathroom window. Oh. Yeah, so this guy's a fucking creep. So let's talk a little bit about Josh. So apparently Josh had also been under investigation for child pornography after cartoon images of incestuous relations between children and mothers were found on his computer in late 2009, early 2010, which is around the same time that Susan went went missing. So he was being investigated for that, and he was being investigated for the the disappearance of his wife. Mm. Um, But because they were cartoon images, he didn't get officially, like... um, charged right. with anything right which is a weird rule to me that seems weird um so in early 2010 susanpavel.org was established um and again she disappeared in early december of 2009 so this is like like a month later maybe it is widely believed that the site was written by josh and stephen powell uh, it's detailed how Josh was a loving father who was a victim of a smear campaign led by Susan's family and the Latter-day Saints Church. So there's actually another disappearance that could possibly be connected with her disappearance. On this website, it's detailed that Susan was having an affair with a man named Stephen Kosher. Stephen went to the same church as Josh and Susan. Oddly enough, Stephen Kosher went missing the same week that Susan did on December 13th. So Stephen Kosher's whole other is a whole other case. It's also weird and he's also never been found. Nobody, no nothing. He was a journalist who was struggling financially uh, on the day he disappeared, there was a mysterious 2,100-mile road trip, uh, and his car was eventually found abandoned in Vegas, which is, I think, about 200 miles from where he lives. And and like I said, to this day, he's like 
still missing. Mm-hmm. It's very, it's very, very, very weird. This website, susanpowell.org, it's not, it's actually not up anymore. It's no longer there. Hmm. Um, says that Stephen and Susan may have run off to Brazil together. So 12 days after Susan's disappearance, Josh took the kids to uh, live with his father in Puyallup, Washington for the holidays. On January 6th, he returned to Utah only to pack up their belongings and he announced that they're moving to Washington permanently. So like I said before, Steve, the father, uh, the creepy father was arrested in 2011 for the voyeurism or whatever. The day after he was arrested, Chuck Cox, Susan's father, filed for custody of the children and was granted that custody temporarily. The court said that Joshua would have to move out of his father's home if he wanted to regain custody of his children. So he rented a house in Graham, Washington, but authorities later said that they later alleged that he never actually moved into that house and that he only like made it appear that he lived there to satisfy the court's instructions while continuing to live like at his father's home. Um, it was never successful though. He never got the kids back. Um, so Susan Powell's still missing to this day and nobody has ever been found. So a couple years later, something extremely tragic happens. February 5th, 2012, social worker Elizabeth Griffin Hill took Brayden, who's now five, and Charlie, seven, to their father's home in South Hill, Washington for a supervised visit because, you know, he had lost custody of the kids. Josh took the kids and locked the door before the social, secu- the social worker could um, come in. And soon after she called 911, the house exploded. Uh, Josh, Brayden, and Charlie were all killed. What? Yeah. So Exploded? Like it, a gas explosion? Like this was done permanently by Josh. Oh, my God. It was a murder. It was confirmed to be a murder-suicide. Uh, a hatchet was recovered near Josh's body. <gasps> the kids had wounds on their heads and their necks. So it's said that he hacked up the kids before succumbing to smoke inhalation. The official cause of death was carbon monoxide poisoning. And um, it was during, and the motive, the suspected motive for this is that this was when the kids started becoming more vocal. They started talking about what they remembered the night that mommy died. Right. Um, And... Josh also recently learned that he wouldn't be getting custody of his sons. Mm. This was all premeditated. Um, And when this happened, Stephen Powell was serving his sentence, and he pled the fifth when he was asked about Susan. Wow. And uh, when he was told about this, he wasn't surprised that it happened, that something like this had happened. And he wouldn't talk about Susan. There was a brief investigation that did show that this was deliberate and planned. The family received email, family and friends received emails from Josh, like minutes before it happened, saying goodbye. And their pastor even received instructions on where to find his money and shutting off utilities. Two five-gallon cans of gasoline were found and gasoline was spread throughout the house and the, like, stove had been on and stuff like, and shit like that. Right. Um, so... About a year later, after Josh 
killed himself and the kids. Michael Powell, uh, Josh's brother, Susan's brother-in-law, jumped off the roof of a parking garage and killed himself. He had been questioned about Susan several times, but he denied any involvement, even though um, his car was found abandoned in a junkyard in Oregon several weeks after Susan's disappearance. So the main working theory is that Josh killed her and the brother helped dispose of the body. And um, the investigation was actually closed in May of 2013 after a couple months after the brother-in-law killed himself. Um, so now that the suspects are dead, they basically say, like, they did it and closed the case. Kind of, yeah. Huh. Um, a lot of more details came out after the case was closed, such as Josh had been unfaithful to Susan with a sex worker, and that was also one of his possible motives. Um, but the thing about both of them is that there was not enough, there was never enough evidence to be charged with any, anything. Right. Um, well, they can't even be sure that she was dead. Exactly. Uh, journal entries from Susan were also found where she talked about fearing that her husband might kill her. Yeah, so that's like the main theory of what happened. I don't know that the brother had anything to do with it. I definitely think Josh killed, killed her, though. Uh, I actually think the father had maybe had something to do with it, too. I what definitely it seems think like. the father was involved. But. At least maybe after the fact, maybe. Yeah, but those poor... But yeah, I mean, it seems like definitely he killed her. <laughs> I mean, that's what, you know, it those definitely poor, seems like. Those poor, poor kids. Yeah. I can't stop thinking about those kids. I know. That was, that's what, like, was a super bummer for me. My sources yeah. were Time Magazine, Ranker, and Wikipedia. Oh, yeah. I should have said my sources. So that is the disappearance of Susan Powell. Weird. And that was 2009. So almost about nine years yep. ago. Yep. And still no one's seen her? Or... Yeah, she's got to be dead. There was a, I want to say like in 2011 or 2012, they found remains, but it wasn't her. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I guess I'll just say my sources now. Yeah, um, what were your sources? Okay, I got stuff from Wikipedia, from the Ayotzinapa students' disappearance page. Um, Patrick J. McDonnell and Cecilia Sanchez at the LA Times. That documentary called 43, which is by Charlie Min. Uh, Christina Areola at Latina.com. Christina, uh, sorry, Christopher Gregory at Mother Jones. And Lizzie Wade at Science Magazine. And Ryan Devereaux of The Intercept. Very nice. Yep. So, we both did disappearances. Both did some pretty... We had no idea what we each other was doing, yeah. so... Yeah, that was a good one. Yeah. Um, the one that got me on this one was the fact that the the invest the husband who was under investigation fucking did a murder suicide after his wife went yeah that's pretty insane that that's the craziest like, wow. murder suicide i've ever heard of mhm mm yeah when i was researching this i was like how have i never heard of this this is insane it's pretty crazy yeah should we say thanks for listening at this point or yeah thanks for listening Thank you. We always thank people for listening. Yes. Very, very grateful for it. Tell all your friends. Have a party. Be like, all right, everybody sit with your popcorn. We're going to listen to this podcast. <laughs> right? It's just two regular people just like you. 
Wouldn't that be a good party? No. No? (laughs) That sounds terrible. All right. I'll take it. Okay. (laughs) Have a party by yourself with your headphones. (laughs) But uh, I love that we're still getting, like, people from different countries listening. Yes! Shout out to all the people in different countries, not the United States. All right. You ready? (laughs) For some weird weird shit in the news. (laughs) That was weird. (laughs) I thought it was good. uh, You go first. Okay. So (laughs) a couple days ago, a woman rode a horse into a dance club in Miami Beach. They were talking about it on the Dan Lebertard show because it happened in Miami. Oh, my God. So a woman in her underwear arriving on a white horse at a packed nightclub and being greeted by flashing cameras didn't go over well with Miami Beach authorities, according to WGN News. <laughs> they, didn't like, they didn't like that? No, the cops weren't happy. Oh. It was in a place called the Mokai Lounge. Mokai? Mokai? Mokai Mokai? I, I do not know. I don't know. Don't look at me. The mo- mo- I like Mokai. The Mokai Lounge. Um, and actually, the the lounge itself is under investigation for possible animal cure- cruelty and oh. public safety issues. Oh. Yeah. So this girl, basically there's a video, and after she falls off, people start cheering. <laughs> <laughs> and wouldn't you? I mean, <laughs> if I was drunk in a club and saw a horse, I'd start cheering for yeah, sure. Yeah. I'd be like, yeah, <laughs> a horse. <laughs> That's just fucked up. <laughs> yeah. And you had one about a horse too, didn't you? Good segue. Um, I also did, yes, have one about a horse. <laughs> um, mine is uh, from a Time Magazine article called Horse Riding Teen who was refused service at Starbucks drive-thru, gets do-over. Aww. It's got a happy ending. She went on her horse through the drive-thru? She was 14 years old. What? 14th birthday. She had been planning this for four years. Since she was 10 years old, this tiny equestrian. I love that she actually went through with it. I know. That's like dedication. This is in uh, Aspen. Colorado. Oh, no. no, no, no. Sorry, 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 sorry. This is in Anthem, Arizona. Oh. Her name is Aspen. Oh, I like that name. Her name's Aspen Klein, which sounds totally made is up. Is she a rich kid who got a horse for her fucking birthday? I'm sure. She's from Anthem, Arizona. I have no idea. Maybe they all have fucking horses there. I don't know. <laughs> they say people have horses in Texas. I didn't see it. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> So when she first tried to go through, they like said no <laughs> and would not give them a reason. <laughs> so her mom was like pretty pissed. And I'm sure like called the manager or something. The regional manager gets involved, <gasps> says, uh-uh, we're getting you. You're fucking going through the drive through on a horse, you know, magical experience. We're getting it for you, Aspen. We're doing it. And they did. And she got to go back later, and what she says is it was very nice, but the horse did try to eat her frappuccino or whatever the fuck she I got. bet the employees were pissed. Yeah. Because, honestly, why the fuck would you let someone go through a drive-thru on a horse? <laughs> right? I mean, you worked in. Oh. Yeah, I worked at a major coffee chain. 
<laughs> or whatever. I don't care. Dip in. Dip in donuts. Right. Uh, you worked at Coffee Shack. <laughs> Generic Coffee Shack place. I worked at Dip In. If someone had come through on a horse, what would you have done? I'd be like, what the flying fuck? Right. <laughs> <laughs> to tell them no. <laughs> like, I'd be like, you need to leave. Get, get a car. <laughs> right. I can't reach that high up, okay? <laughs> uh, ma'am... I'm not gonna be able to do that for you. Your horse is drooling I'm all sorry. over the counter. <laughs> I'm sorry. Is that how I talk? No, that's how I would talk in that situation. <laughs> I, I became very sassy. <laughs> I think we need to end it. Yeah, probably. I think it's. <laughs> I've been particularly rambly this episode. So. I love you. Oh. You can be as rambly as you want. I'm a rambling man. Um. This comes out on Pie Day. Happy Pie Day. Happy Pie Day. I'd like to plug a pizza place. I'm not going to say what it is. <laughs> right. Because I, they're not paying me. <laughs> but they're but giving they out $3.14 pizzas tomorrow. It's going to be good. It's going to be good. Go find that yeah. pizza place. Yeah. I'm not going to tell. Man, I wish they would pay us. I know, right? Because I genuinely love that place. Yeah, me too. Subscribe on iTunes. Yeah, please comment. And rate us and we, subscribe. We've had one rating and comment from, from my brother. From Shout Miller. out to my brother who's killing it. What's He's up? Our, what's up, Nick? What's up? He's our dude. Um, yeah. Yeah. Bye? Yeah. Question mark? <laughs> bye. Good job, bye you. Oh, God.